Hello and welcome to Moving the Needle on Wicked Problems, our podcast. Today we continue our mini series on racism and diversity in Canada, and we are going to take a deep dive into how racism affects our lives and look at our lives through the lens of diversity. For this episode, we are going to look at journalism in Canada because we all know how how important uh, journalism is to the way we uh, get our news and form our opinions. So is journalism really diverse or diverse enough? Do organizations do enough to recruit and promote BIPOC journalists? And what's the impact of diversity or conversely, what's the impact of lack of diversity on the stories and issues that are covered by the media. Absolutely, Senator. Uh, I think this will be a very interesting episode to sort of deep dive into the journalist world and see where there is a lacking of diversity or where there's, you know, areas of light. But I also wanted to add to this is that, you know, there recently has been an escalation of racist comments and threats against BIPOC journalists. Uh, media organizations such as the CBC and the Toronto Star have called out these vile acts. But beyond sort of supportive words, uh, it's really unclear what is being done to protect these journalists. You know, what should organizations do to deal with racism and threats against their people? So there's a lot of questions that need a lot of answers, I guess. So we have a lot to talk about. So let's get to the interview. So to look into this whole issue of diversity, racism in journalism, I'm really privileged. Paul and I are really privileged to talk today to Supriya Dvedi. Supriya is senior counsel at Enterprise Canada, political commentator and former radio host. And we are also joined by Nicholas Kang from the Toronto Star. Nicholas writes about immigration, refugee and diversity issues, and his work has enlightened many people and has won many awards. Both are seasoned professionals that can help us understand this particular conversation about journalism and its interplay with diversity and racism. So with that, welcome Supriya and Nicholas. Um, one of your colleagues, uh, journalist Denise Balkasun, has said that equity is still a big issue in Canadian journalism. Is she right? Yeah, uh, yes, unequivocally, yes. I mean, I will state just for the record and for full disclosure, Denise is a good friend of mine, so her and I have talked about this quite a bit. Um, but if you just look at the stats in terms of who is working for, you know, major legacy organizations and then who in those roles are given positions of power, like who are given senior roles um, and how much you know, power once they're actually there, are they really given, you, you know, are they simply there to fill uh, a diversity sort of checkbox in terms of a masthead or by saying, you know, we have one racialized radio host um, in terms of our roster, or are they actually given, you know, decision-making power on the back end and invited to, you know, the real uh, table of sorts as to, you know, where decisions are, are made? Mm -hmm. So, 
Go ahead, Nicholas. Yeah, I can't agree with uh, Supriya anymore. And I think it's been an issue that visible minority journalists have been aware of and talked about among ourselves. But I think for a long time, it wasn't really discussed publicly. Uh, and there's been this sense of, at least for my generation, and I think I started my career, you know, before, you know, earlier than, than, than uh, Supriya and uh, even Denise, uh, I started my career in the 90s. And I felt like, you know, um, when I joined, you know, the, the star, you know, I felt like, you know, I was put into that place in a quote unquote mainstream organization. And, and I think that the, the expectation was different. You know, there was a time when, you know, the, the, the journalism was dying. I, I think, you know, a lot of, you know, people who started in my generation had different expectations. We were just grateful being there. And I think nowadays, you know, as we all know, the, all those dinosaur media organizations actually are, are fading and, you know, not doing well in terms of advertising. And I think the newer generation of reporters, visible minority re reporters, you know, you know, uh, in the, in the new, newer generations, they already started a career in on contracts from contract to contract. And I think their expectation is a bit different and there's no need to be safe. They could be bold and more, um, ambitious, you know, seeking for change. And I think that's why it's more talked about, you know, as a topic now and more openly than when I started as a Visman, you know, reporter, you know, in, mm -hmm. in the mainstream media. So let me ask maybe the, the question many people will, will ask. Journalists are truth tellers. And the truth does not have race attached to it. So why does this matter at all? After all, the news is the news. You're right. The news is the news and the truth is the truth. I am a firm believer in that. But in terms of what stories and what news gets covered, it absolutely matters in terms of who is deciding uh, editorially, you know, where to send a reporter um, and how to cover it, the angle in which you're covering it. Right. I think in the last few years, we've really seen a groundswell sort of switch in terms of uh, reporting on crime and policing in general, where, you know, a few years ago, and particularly, you know, if we're talking a dec decades ago, you would take whatever statement the police were giving to you at complete face value and basically print it verbatim. Now you're starting to get increasing pushback because of the work of uh, racialized folks on the ground who are saying, hey, hey, wait a second, you know, that's not always true. And with the advent of everyone having these, you know, pocket computers, aka our phones that have recording devices on them, we are now seeing in, in unfortunate uh, graphic reality how sometimes the, the truth, and I'm putting that in air quotes, what the police put forward isn't necessarily what you're actually seeing and actually experiencing. So with this diversity comes a different perspective and a different way of covering the news. Nick, you've been a reporter with the star for ever for for as long as I've been reading the star, which is a long I time. I started as I started as a toddler. So just <laughs> a toddler, yes. Um, so I'm going to ask you a question um, about your beat. You cover immigration stories. And I love reading them and you're a brilliant investigative journalist. But why have you been assigned immigration? Was that your choice? Would you have, let's say, preferred to do international trade or because you are an immigrant, you've been assigned the immigration beat? Is there some kind of 
reverse racism built into this as well? That's a very interesting question. Um, before I became the immigration reporter, I was actually offered at one point to be the Chinese issue reporter on staff. I, I took it as a compliment because obviously I think, you know, you, you know there are not many reporters in, in uh, the, the quote-unquote mainstream media, whatever that means today, uh, who can actually read, write, and, um, uh, you know, uh, understand and speak Chinese, you know, both Cantonese and Mandarin. So, you know, definitely I, I take it as an advantage for me to explore some of those stories. But at the same time, you know, um, I certainly didn't want to be pigeonholed um, to be uh, a one-dimensional reporter. And I just feel a lot of times, you know, being a Visman reporter you in, in, in the media, you know, you have to prove yourself that you can deliver all the other kind of stories like any other Canadian colleagues can. And on top of that, you have more to offer. I always feel that kind of um, obligation and you know that 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 burden on my shoulders to, to do that um but you know so i counter offered you know why don't you know instead of like trying to cover these stories in silos you know why don't we bring these communities together you know what are some of the the more you know issues that can bring all these communities together would be you know through immigration because we all come as immigrant uh, as immigrants you know one way or the other um so that's sort of what happened so when I took up the job as the immigration reporter back in 2003, it was my choice. Yeah, but it's okay. a, you know, it's a compromise. Yeah. So, Supriya, um, you've also had an interesting career. Let me put it this way. How hard has it been for you to climb the ladder? And you're, you're relatively young. You have a long way to go, and I'm sure you'll be super successful. But what has your experience been so far? In terms of climbing the actual ladder, I would say that I am very grateful to, you know, the work of all of the journalists like, you know, Nicholas, who've come before me, who have really laid the groundwork and who have made it so much easier for my generation and, you know, folks younger than me that are now coming up the ladder. One thing that I will say in terms of where I found it difficult um, being often the only racialized person in the room of a senior leadership team or of senior media folks is that often what the issues that you're talking about, whether it's racism, whether it's online vitriol or hate, um, you're not necessarily believed. And it's it's not as though people are like pointing at you and, and you know, saying that you're lying or that you're making stuff up, but it's just, it's it's downplayed. So I, I was very public in what happened to me when I was a, a talk radio host here in the city of Toronto. Um, and, it, you know, there was a, a certain level, I think, of incredulity that a lot of my predominantly male white, co you know, uh, colleagues would, I come back at me with when I would, you know, read them what I was getting. And it's not as though they weren't sympathetic, they were. It's just that to them, it's often like, oh, well, I get mean tweets too. And it's like, yeah, I'm not talking about mean tweets. I'm talking about very graphic threats of rape and death um, towards me, right? So it's it's a different ball game. Um, and and I, I would say that's the, probably one of the, the biggest sort of disconnects that I would have experienced because, you know, in terms of actual ladder climbing, as it were, I was, I was pretty lucky. I mean, I was given a very prominent role, like talk radio, either you're the morning show host or you're the afternoon drive host, you know, right? Those are the two big slots. So I've, I've been very fortunate in that respect.
Now you've both sort of mentioned that you know obviously that that diversity is a is a problem in journalism. And Sapria, you're just talking about your experience as the talk radio host. You know, I, I'm 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 wondering, you know, what can organizations do? Not only just the media companies themselves, like the Toronto Star or Global, whoever, but also the sort of umbrella organizations like the Canadian Association of Journalists, do to either one protect uh, journalists, the uh, BIPOC journalists that are facing, you know, online threats or even just threats to their house coming through the mail or whatever it is, but also to encourage more diversity within their ranks and, and in, you know, promote people, have them in positions of power rather than just maybe, you know, as you said, sort of filling a box. Nick, I feel like I've been talking a lot, so I'll, 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 I'll <laughs> jump in here and then I promise I'll let you, uh, I'll let you get in there. I mean, there's I, there's actually quite a bit. So, I mean, in terms of what media organizations can actually do, um, I have mentioned this in the past, but Defector Media, it's an American outlet, it's a startup outlet, and they actually provide a whole host of protections for their folks um, that are reporting on the ground. Uh, they provide paid time off if, you know, you need to take a break from what you're doing. They provide a, a proxy um, in terms of if you're getting just a torrent of hate on your social media accounts and you need somebody else to be, you know, assessing whether something Something is just a nasty racist, you know, diatribe against you, or if there's an actual legitimate threat in there. Uh, Defector will also work with authorities. They'll get you legal help, um, you know, mental health supports, that sort of thing. And then lastly, I would just say, if you're talking about actual journalism organizations, I think one of the things that they should be pushing, aside from everything I've just listed, is better protections for freelancers. Because as Nick pointed out at the onset of this conversation, you know, journalism is dying. And a lot of folks that do this work, they do it because they love it and they're moving from contract to contract. They don't necessarily have the same sort of labor protections that, you know, unionized employees or otherwise full-time employees at one of these legacy uh, media corps will, will have. <laughs> Nick, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I certainly feel like the, obviously there's a generational gap, I think, you know, um, in a good way. I think that's part of the diversity of perspectives here that, you know, Supriya and I offered. And I feel like always still like talking and thinking about diversity and inclusion at the organizational level is I still feel is a luxury. We all know that news organizations have struggled for a long time to get, you know, advertising and subscribers in the internet age. And when, when these organizations trying to meet the bottom line for profits, I don't think, you know, diversity and inclusion necessarily are, are their top priorities. And um, yeah, but, 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 but I feel certainly, um, you know, at the organization levels, you know, certainly, you know, the support, whatever support they could offer to BIPOC reporters, even in terms of, you know, um, some sort of um, programs, mentorship program to promote them to the positions in power, I think would be super helpful. Uh, so they can, you know, at the editorial meetings, they could offer different perspectives and even like, you know, what the colonial lands, you know, telling stories through the colonial lands, you know, uh, you know we can have more, first-person voices, uh, and I think it, that process itself is empowering to both the BIPOC reporters and for those communities they represent. And I think at the government level, you know, certainly, um, you know, this the Liberal government has been talking about, you know, these online bullying and hate crime uh, legislations, and I just hope that, you know, uh, they would put more teeth to it, you know, to criminalize those kind of, you know, behaviors, you know, uh, uh, including hate, you know, against uh, journalists. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
so thank you, Nick, for mentioning the legislative lever. Yes, uh, you know, I, I can. We all know that the hate crime legislation that was proposed in the last parliament will likely find its expression in the next parliament. But part of, you know, legislation often drives uh, uh, ideas underground. You know, they, they may not be in the public sphere, but they've been driven underground. Do you worry about these, uh, you know, there are all kinds of social media platforms. Um, do you worry about hate just moving to another place away from, you know, formal journalism to informal expressions of ideas? I, I guess that's always there, but I, I just wanted to get your view on on, uh, you know, legislation as a lever, but a limited lever against the way people think and react. I think that that's interesting because I think the internet age actually brought, you know, um, a lot of those hate folks, you know, um, to the open above ground. But does it make me feel safer when I do my job, when I write about these stories? Like, I, I don't know, but my concern is more about, you know, by having these, you know, uh, comments uh, and hateful thoughts, you know, in public is going to normal, normal, normalize, you know, that is being accepted is okay and it's going to further promote uh, uh, those kind of thinking. Like, I think, you know, if you ask me, you know, my thoughts, whether, you know, it's actually, would that drive, you know, these people more further underground and, uh, I think, you know, we, we, we need to, you know, balance, you know, you know, strike that balance, you know, between promoting these ideas versus pushing them on the ground. Uh, I would rather not seeing them open uh, to make it normal to, you know, to have these kind of thinkings. And even like, you know, this, the, the, the last two federal elections, for example, I think, you know, we've heard a lot of criticisms and debates about, you know, whether we should even legitimize the, the People's Party um, you know, led by uh, Mr. Bernier. Like, I, I think that's, you know, I think it's important for us to have those kind of discussions, but, you know, somehow we just need to, uh, while doing that, not to promote those ideas. So I, I think it's a really tough call. Yeah. Okay. So Supriya, I want to reflect on, on the election that we just had. Um, unlike let's say Germany, which also had an election, issues of immigration did not really make it into the debates or the discourse. And maybe that's a good thing. In fact, most people think it's one of the good features of our system that we don't talk about, you know, issues like racism and mixed up with immigration during uh, election uh, uh, debates. But we, we all know that there's a rise of uh, anti, uh, there's a rise of Islamophobia. There's also a particular rise of, of hate against uh, Chinese Canadians because of our relationship with China. Do you, do you believe that journalists should talk about this and, and insert this into the, into the debates? I mean, outside the question by Sachi Curl on, uh, on uh, uh, Bill 21 in Quebec, it, it barely got any airtime. 
Yeah, it did barely get any airtime. And I think you look at who were on the campaign buses and, you know, look at what the Ottawa press gallery looks like, and you get a pretty clear picture as to why issues of, you know, racism, Islamophobia, anti-Black racism, anti-Indigenous racism, the spike in against, you know, Asian Canadians in, in terms of actual acts of violence, as well as words of, of hate, have all increased and you get a, and it becomes very clear as to why that's left off of the uh, a, agenda. Um, what's interesting to me is that journalists don't necessarily have a ton of issue with inserting themselves into the narrative when they see fit. And yet when it comes to issues of, you know, racism, diversity, et cetera, they tend to play the, oh, well, we're just, you know, objective observers okay. and all of this. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have a, a good answer beyond it, it, the reason why it was left off is because, again, there was not a lot of diversity in terms of who was covering the election. So the the one way of looking at this is if we had more people with your lens, yours and, uh, and Nick's lens, both uh, in the newsrooms, on the airwaves, behind the radio waves, and in the editorial rooms, I think that is important, the editorial rooms, the narrative will shift. Is that yeah. a fair conclusion? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. And, and let me give you a tangible example. So when we were talking about the Afghan crisis and what was happening, um, you know, at the time the election was called, right, um, the narrative around the refugees that Canada was going to be welcoming were solely relegated to, you know, fixers that were in Afghanistan for Canadian journalists or translators. We weren't talking about actual increases in terms of our, you know, targets for accepting refugees. And as you noted, it was largely left off the, you know, overall discourse of the election. That to me was a major, you know, failure of journalism uh, in, in, in this country to not have looked at the broader picture and not have looked at, you know, what Canada can do to um, increase our numbers in terms of welcoming Afghan refugees and how we can partner with some of our, you know, allies in the region to be who may not, you know, have our record when it comes to being as open and welcoming to refugees. Um, to work with them to say, okay, you probably can better get them out. You're probably better suited to actually physically get them out. And then once they're out, we'll take them and we'll make them our own here in Canada. And I just wanted to add to a comment that uh, Supriya actually mentioned about, you know, the diversity, you know, in the Parliament Hill, for example. When I look around, like I find it interesting uh, if you look at, you know, because usually I think political writers, they're more prestiged, like at least in the print media, uh, you know, whether City Hall, Queen's Park or uh, Parliament Hill. Um, I don't know, like when it comes to the career paths of the BIPOC journalists, you know, whether, you know, there's a, because of there's a lack of represent, their representation in those bureaus, they don't think of themselves, you know, working in, covering politics, for example. If, and if you look around, really, there are very, it's primarily white uh, uh, journalists, you know, covering politics. And, and, and we all know that politics, politicians, they are decision makers, they are the you know, authorities, powers. And I don't know, like, when it comes to, you know, grooming, you know, uh, you know, BIPOC reporters, maybe, you know, it's an opportunity, there are opportunities out there for media outlets to actually to mentor the BIPOC, you know, to explore, you know, BIPOC journalists 
to explore that as a career options for them instead of being sort of like, you know, uh, I, I, I wouldn't say that you know, I was pigeonholed to cover immigration because I really enjoy telling these stories. And, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I have never thought of, you know, covering politics as an option for me, like in my career, and it wasn't my choice. You know, I, I just okay. thought it wasn't there for me. Um, Supriya, you, you talked about mean tweets, and I'm going to go there for a bit because I too, like both of you, get mean tweets, likely not as many as you do. Uh, but over time, I have developed a thicker skin. Have you? And is that part of the armor that you have to put on? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think I have. I think I've developed a, I refer to it as a bit of a calloused skin because I think that's how you have to look at it. And I think there's, for me, the line uh, that was crossed was when, you know, the threats weren't just relegated to myself or weren't even just relegated to my husband, but they brought my then, you know, one-year-old daughter into it. And that was when I just, that was my line. It was like the yeah. straw that broke the camel's back. And I was like, all right, I'm out. Like, it's one thing if I have to worry about myself and, you know, I'm pretty careful about my online presence. Like I never will take a picture of myself where it's visible what neighborhood I'm, you know, I'm, I'm living in or whatever, but I didn't want to have to really think about every single time I'm posting something or my daughter's there. Can you see a street sign? Can you see a park sign of where she is? Is there going to be, you know, some nutter out there who has it out for me? He was going to figure out where she's going to preschool, you know? And so these were the things that um, were going through my mind and it just, for me, it just wasn't worth it. So I, I tapped out. And I think for me, like, you know, I have developed this technique to compartmentalize my life. Just don't yep. let my work life interfere, you know, you know, insulate myself from those kind of personal attacks or criticisms. And um, yeah, you know, I think as journalists, we've, all had pretty thick skin to do our, to be able to do our job anyway, uh, but but I think you know we just you know uh, have developed those kind of skills, and I think we we all have to have like pretty good EQ in order to you know protect ourselves mentally. Um, and do you think like with all of this going on about you know a lack of diversity in the in journalism? Um, you know, we often see almost every day Twitter fights between journalists and, and other people, journalists calling or columnists, I guess, whatever you want to call them, calling others psychos and this and that. Um, do we have a situation where trust is being broken between the general public and journalists? Not only, and what I'm getting by that is, is if it's not very diverse and people aren't seeing the stories that they should be seeing because there is this lack of diversity, what trust do individual citizens have in journalists now? And how can we mend that trust if there is a, a lack of trust there? I don't know, Supriya, if you want to jump in there. Asking us to solve journalism and like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I, I, I think it's I think it's true that there is a lack of trust and, and it's further eroding. And I think we, we've seen that with respect to public opinion polls and there's enough quantitative data to, to back that up. How you go about fixing that um, is a great question. And to be honest, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how you bring somebody who's already lost that trust, how you're supposed to bring it back. I think the folks that still have trust, you can likely maintain it by, by improving reporting and having stories reflect the communities that are you know living and breathing this sort of thing um, but I, I, I guess one answer to it would simply be 
to reflect what your actual population looks like. So if you're a paper like the Toronto Star, we know that in Toronto, for example, um, it, we're basically a majority minority city, right? And if you're and so it doesn't make sense to have a roster of these elite columnists or political writers, as as Nick was referring to, solely be relegated to one gender, one race, or even one class, right? You do need a, a mix of, of 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 voices, and I don't know if we're currently doing that with uh, with just the status quo. And from my own observation, I feel I do feel like you know if you look at the enrollment in journalism schools, the demographics actually have been changing, and I, you know um, you see a more, lot more diversity. And if you look at the, you know any newsroom, I think there are more the newer among the newer generation of reporters, you could see more diversity there. But I think you know it's still we're still at a very early stage, and there's still a, definitely a lack of uh, BIPOC journalists in the positions of power, uh, like, you know, as columnists and as managers. Uh, I think the, the, the gender, you know, equity is there in the management, uh, but we are talking about white women primarily, not like even visible minority women. So I think, you know, having some, you know, that kind of diversity uh, of voices, perspectives in positions of power would definitely make a big difference in terms of uh, at least the perception, you know, among readers or viewers, you know, to have more trust and faith uh, in your, uh, in your, uh, yeah, in your news and, and, and in, in you, you know, in the organization, right? So, um, yeah, I think, you know, we need to work towards that, you know, having uh, more uh, people of color in those positions. I, I'm curious, sorry, if you don't mind, just jump in there, Senator, just quickly for just to follow up on that. I'm just wondering, you know, we've been essentially a year and a half from George Floyd killing in, in the United States, which captured, you know, people's attention. Obviously, the pandemic had something to do with that. People went onto the streets. Uh, you know, part of the reason why we're doing this mini series, we call it, of, of season two of the podcast, is to delve deep into where we are now, you know, a year and a half or a year, almost two years later. Are we seeing progress here? Um, is there more progress that you're seeing on a regular basis uh, to break down these sort of barriers that that uh, BIPOC journalists are facing? And again, not only just in the sense of like ticking a number, but actually maybe moving up in the, you know, in the ranks of journalism and into different uh, positions. So I think the response from media companies would be that, yes, there has been progress that's made and that they're listening, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they all posted a black square on Instagram last summer and made them feel good. Um, but in terms of actually tangible results, no, I, I don't think so. And I don't know if you if, if like we were to ask folks that were on the ground in those newsrooms um, how they feel about it. I would go ahead and venture to guess that their response would be very similar to what I'm giving you right now. And I think part of the issue is that the folks in those leadership positions, and I'm not just talking about like the columnists or the hosts or whatever, but actual management leadership positions are predominantly white, like vast majority white. And in a lot of cases, it's like, if you're not gonna actually do anything about it, if you're not gonna intentionally change your hiring strategy or try to put out you know, calls for a better diverse newsroom, then like get out the way because there are folks coming up the ladder that are hungry, that wanna mm -hmm. enact change. 
And, you know, you can't keep saying, oh, well, we're trying and we're trying and we're trying because after a certain point, you got to show some results uh, with those with the efforts that are claiming to have been put in. So when you speak about results, and this is a very interesting thought and a question for both of you, is is when we talk about results, you you have to take a look at evidence. Um, and the corporate sector has evidence by law. They have to disclose who's on their boards, who's in the senior leadership. Has anyone done uh, evidence gathering on diversity in the media? Or, or is, is, is now the time to do it? I think CAJ has, I think the Canadian Association of, of Journalists has, um, They. I know that they sent out questionnaires and surveys to, you know, legacy and major media organizations across Canada to try and get their numbers, but this is part of the problem. You shouldn't have to have a third party organization basically twisting arms and saying, well, we're going to publish a report yeah. and, you know, shame you essentially into your into your stats. This should be something that should be proactively done on behalf of, of media companies precisely because if you have more diverse newsrooms, if you have people that are of, uh, you know, different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities, different religions, making these editorial decisions, um, you get better news. And when you get better news, more people will tune in. And to Nick, he, he touched on this earlier, but when you're, you know, around a, ma a media management exec table, they are thinking about bottom line and they're not thinking about, you know, diversity, but those two are married, it, particularly in major, you know, uh, urban settings in, in Canada. So it's it's silly to me that that is still the thought uh, at, at, at out there that, that that's prevalent because if you marry the two, then you'll you'll get you will get better um, results because more people will buy your product. What I also find interesting, you know, is related to what the comment that you just made, uh, Sarip, uh, 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 is the fact that you know I think the internet actually pro has provided a lot of opportunities for BIPOC journalists that you know people like myself did not have you know in my, for my generation. What I mean is that um, when I started in journalism, there were you know. You know, your your dream is to work for the star, to work for the globe. And um, and then if you look at, you know, the circulation and the uh, readership, I think that's because of the demographic of the community is changing. And because of the distrust in those quote unquote traditional mainstream media, that's why we are seeing people turn to other, you know, the, like Thais and like other publications, Canada Land, for those kind of representation that the mainstream media doesn't provide. And I think that's, you know, uh, it, the, 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 to, uh, the, the mainstream media should take notes of that, like that, you know, to, and really delve into why, you know, the, the, you know, they are not, you know, getting the, 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 the same number of readerships, you know, even though the population for sure in Toronto is doubling, right? It is, you know, when that, you know, uh, in the last 20 years since I, I started at the star. So why it, alternatively, the, the numbers are going down, right? So let me ask you a question about the law again, because that's what I do. I'm a legislator and I always you know, I'm curious about the legislative fix and we've all, you know, you talked Nick about the opportunity that social media platforms are opening up, but there's also a dark side to this. Social media platforms fester hate 
And uh, just as Supriya uh, pointed out, you know, one has to be really careful with one's personal life. Um, and the Facebook whistleblower recently in the United States uh, talked about hate cry, hate speech, for example, which is what we have. We have legislation against hate speech. Hate speech deals with the symptoms. It doesn't deal with the cause, and the cause is the algorithms that are at play that encourage uh, all kinds of expressions of volatility simply because they'll get more likes and therefore Facebook will make more money or Google will make more money. Do you think in Canada, outside hate speech legislation and outside regulating social media platforms to prevent hate speech, we have to go a step further and actually look at legislating around algorithms and their use? I think we we should be demanding more transparency around how these algorithms work, particularly if you're talking about a platform, you know, like Facebook. I, and I, I will give you, again, one very small example anecdotally from my own experience. I quit Facebook very shortly after I gave birth because I got very sick of the new mommy wellness naturalist uh, crap I was getting into my feed. I made the mistake of clicking on one group and then before I knew it, um, Facebook decided that my entire feed and all of the groups that were going to be recommended to me were basically one step away from going, you know, full Gwyneth Paltrow of like putting jade crystals and you know where. So I was just very, I was like, this sucks. Like I'm out. Like I still have Instagram and whatever. So I realized I'm not out of the umbrella of the behemoth that is Facebook, but it just gives you one example of how the, you know, what they're feeding you. If I was somebody that was into questioning, let's say vaccines, for example, and I was just looking for more information about the differences, let's say, between a few of the vaccines that have been approved in Health Canada, it could very easily, and we've seen this and we've heard from folks that this has happened to, start feeding you really hardcore anti-vax content. And so they're almost, the algorithm in and of itself is like a, a radicalization sort of machine. And that is where I think, you know, calls for transparency and, and regulatory action can help because there is something to be said about uh, how these platforms amplify and take advantage of, you know, simple question asking, so to say. Mm -hmm. and, and I totally agree. I think before we, we need to, I, before we can identify the issue, we need to know how it works first. Exactly. Yeah. So I could carry on asking you both questions forever. Uh, but I think for now, uh, I come to this conclusion after this conversation with both of you. The truth is diverse. And let me wish you both all the best. You know, continue to be truth tellers through your lens. Um, and Canada will thank you for it. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thanks for Thank you. Thank you.